Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly web scene for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled, Jesus Wept. It's based upon the lectionary readings for March 29th, 2020, the fifth Sunday in Lent. Like many of you, I am sheltering in place as I write this essay, and battling fear as the news headlines grow darker and grimmer. Here in California, most stores and businesses are closed. Medical professionals are facing equipment shortages. The streets are ominously quiet, and the number of COVID-19 cases is growing by the day. I know that in other parts of the world, doctors are being forced to make horrific decisions about who will receive medical care and who will die. I know that countless people are getting laid off without warning, facing illness without medical insurance, caring for the infected without adequate protection, watching helplessly as savings drain away, and mourning their dead without the dignity of funerals or memorial services. Here we are, church. Here we are in crisis, watching the world reel and lurch in ways most of us have never experienced before. Here we are, as the gospel for this fifth Sunday in Lent shows us Jesus holding two angry, grief-stricken sisters in his arms and telling them with absolute certainty that he is the resurrection and the life. Here we are, as Jesus holds the triumphant truth of eternal and abundant life in unashamed, unapologetic tension with his own tears. I'll be honest, the story of Jesus Raising Lazarus from the dead is a hard one for me. At many levels, I don't understand it. I don't understand why Jesus dawdles when he first receives word of Lazarus's illness. I don't understand why he allows his friends to suffer for the sake of God's glory. I don't understand why he tells his disciples that Lazarus is asleep rather than dead. I don't understand why he sidesteps Martha's tortured accusation, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I don't understand why Jesus raises only one man and not everyone. And I don't understand why Lazarus virtually disappears from the gospel narrative once his grave clothes fall off. Why is he never heard from again? In many ways, the story is shrouded in mystery. But today... This week, now, I cling to the two words in the narrative I do understand. Jesus wept. Thank God, Jesus wept. For me, this is the heart of the story as we live through the COVID-19 crisis, that grief takes hold of God and breaks him down. That Jesus, the most accurate revelation of the divine we will ever have, stands at the grave of his friend and cries. Let me be clear. In focusing on Jesus' tears, I'm not ignoring or minimizing the raising of the dead, the conquering of the grave, the unbinding of the bound. I'm a Christian because I believe in resurrection. I believe it as metaphor and as symbol. I believe that God can and will bring back to life all that is dead, buried, forgotten, and festering within us. Old wounds, hardened hearts, stubborn addictions, fierce fears. I believe that God is always and everywhere in the business of making us more fully and abundantly alive. Alive to love, alive to hope, alive to each other, alive to creation. 
But that's not all. I also believe in literal resurrection. I believe in life after our physical deaths. I believe that the great good news of the gospel is that Jesus actually conquered death, all death, every death, death itself. For me, the love and compassion of a just God requires the making right of every single death on this earth that leaves us staggering in shock, rage, bewilderment, and sorrow. For me, the literal raising of Lazarus is a sign that death will not have the last word in our physical embodied lives. We will be raised. But I hold these beliefs in a world full of uncertainty and sorrow. A world where Martha's accusation, Lord, if you had been here, echoes through the ages in truth and agony. So I cherish Jesus' tears right now, perhaps even more than I cherish the miracle that follows them. Here are some of the reasons why. When Jesus weeps, he legitimizes human grief. His brokenness in the face of Mary and Martha's sorrow negates all forms of Christian triumphalism that leave no room for lament. Yes, resurrection is around the corner, but in this story, the promise of joy doesn't cancel out the essential work of grief. When Jesus cries, he assures Mary and Martha not only that their beloved brother is worth crying for, but also that they are worth crying with. Through his tears, Jesus calls all of us into the holy vocation of empathy, co-suffering, and lamentation. When Jesus weeps, he honors the complexity of our gains and losses, our sorrows and joys. Raising Lazarus would not bring back the past. It would not cancel out the pain of his final illness, the memory of saying goodbye to a life he loved, or the gaping absence his sisters felt when he died. Whatever joys awaited his family in the future would be layered joys, joys stripped of an earlier innocence, joys shaped by the sorrows, fears, and losses they had just endured. In Lazarus's case, his future would be nothing like his past. Forever afterwards, he'd be known in his village as the one who returned. Perhaps that bizarre fact would make him a hero. Perhaps it would make him a pariah. Either way, life would be new and strange and scary. Jesus' tears honor the reality of human change. He grieves because things will never be the same again. When Jesus weeps, he honors the nuances of faith. At no point does he expect piety to be disembodied or sanitized. He recognizes that all expressions of belief and trust come with emotional baggage. Martha expresses deep resentment and anger at Jesus' delay, and in the next breath voices her trust in his power. Mary blames Jesus for Lazarus' death, but she does so on her knees in a posture of belief and submission. Likewise, Jesus' face is wet with tears when he prays to God and resurrects his friend. This is what real faith looks like. It embraces rather than vilifies the full spectrum of human psychology. When Jesus weeps, he acknowledges his own mortality. In John's Gospel, the raising of Lazarus is the precipitating event that leads to Jesus' own arrest and crucifixion. When word spreads about the miracle in Bethany, the authorities decide that enough is enough. Jesus must be stopped. Essentially, Jesus trades his life for his friends. Given this fact, I imagine that Jesus' tears are an expression of grief over his own pending death. He knows that the end is imminent. He knows that his time with his friends is almost over. He knows that it's nearly time to say goodbye to the lakes and skies and hills and stars he loves. 
In crying, he asserts powerfully that it is okay to yearn for life. It's okay to cling to this beautiful world. It's okay to feel a sense of wrongness and injustice in the face of death. Death is the enemy, the aberration, the thief. It is okay to mourn the loss of vitality, of intimacy, of longevity. It is okay to love and cherish the gift of life here and now. And finally, when Jesus weeps, he shows us that sorrow is a powerful catalyst for change. In the story of Lazarus, it is shared lament that leads to transformation. It's because Jesus experiences a devastation of death that he recognizes the immediate need to restore life. It is his shattering that leads to resurrection. Perhaps Jesus' tears can provoke us in similar ways. What breaks our hearts? What splits us open in sorrow? What enrages us to the point of breakdown? Can we mobilize into those very spaces even now as the coronavirus changes our world? Can we work for transformation in our places of devastation? Can our sorrow lead us to justice? During these last weeks of Lent, as we prepare for Jesus' own death and resurrection, I hope that Jesus' tears can keep us tender, open, humble, generous, and brave. I hope his honest expression of sorrow will give us the permission, the company, and the impetus we need not only to do the work of grief and healing, but to move with powerful compassion into a world that sorely needs our empathy and our love. Yes, we are in death right now, but we serve a God who calls us to life. Our journey is not to the grave, but through it. The Lord who weeps is also the Lord who resurrects. So we mourn in hope. For books this week, Dan reviews Shortcuts to Happiness, Life-Changing Lessons from My Barber by Tal Ben-Shahar. I felt a little silly reviewing a book like this until I noticed the background of the author. Tal Ben-Shahar, born in 1970, earned his BA and PhD at Harvard in Organizational Behavior, where he taught two of the largest classes ever in Harvard's history, Positive Psychology and the Psychology of Leadership. He's been called a happiness expert and a social psychologist. For the last 15 years, he has taught leadership, happiness, and mindfulness all over the world, and his five previous books have been translated into 25 languages. Clearly, many people are still searching for that elusive elixir. What is happiness, and how do we get it? From 2014 to 2016, Ben Shahar took notes every time he went to his barber in Tel Aviv. This book, with its 40 chapters, is the result. I read it in one sitting, but it would also be useful to take it in very small bites, a chapter a day. Each chapter is about three pages long and follows the same format. He first recalls his conversations with his barber, and then he relates those conversations to a broad array of mainstream intellectuals, scientific studies, etc. From Socrates to Aristotle to Durkheim, Voltaire, Maimonides, Mark Twain, and John Donne. The book is about what I expected, but I was still glad I read it. In Ben Shahar's words, the wisdom he gleans from his barber is really about common-sense solutions to our universal human problems. Gratitude is important. Live in the present, not in the future. Less can be more. Adversity can help us grow. Be open to change. These observations might be obvious, but they also bear repeating. This book reminded me of a more scientific but similar one by Carl Pillemer, 
30 Lessons for Living, Tried and True Advice from the Wisest Americans. Pillemer is a professor of human development at Cornell University who specializes in gerontology and founded the Cornell Institute for Translational Research on Aging. His book presents the results of a study in which Pillemer studied a 1,000 elderly people across five years, conducting over 10,000 interviews of various types. He then organized their insights into six major themes, with five life lessons for each theme, marriage, work, parenting, aging, living without regret, and happiness. These sorts of popular books might not change your life, like Ben Shahar's subtitle promises, but they can still be helpful in reminding us about what matters most. For films this week, Dan reviews God Knows Where I Am. On May 3rd, 2008, Kevin Carbone stopped at an abandoned farmhouse near Concord, New Hampshire, thinking that it was for sale. When he looked through the windows, he saw a badly decomposed body lying on the floor. That was a homeless person named Linda Bishop. Next to her body were two diaries that she had kept for the last four months of her life when she lived in the house. The filmmakers reconstruct Bishop's story through dramatic readings of her daily journal entries, family video, and still photos, and the reflections of a broad array of people involved with her story. Police, medical examiners, the owners of the abandoned house, friends, psychiatrists, social workers, an occupational therapist, a trial judge, and especially her daughter Kate and her sister Joan. Remarkably, a very busy Route 93 ran right in front of the house, and Bishop was close enough to a neighbor that she records seeing their Christmas tree from her window. A final journal entry, To Whomever Finds My Body, before she died of starvation after recording that she had not eaten in 40 days, gives burial instructions and includes her name, date of birth, and social security number. In the end, this poignant story is a complicated case study about the interplay between mental illness, bipolar disorder, and psychosis, homelessness, medical privacy laws, patient rights, and family helpers. This documentary won 13 awards at film festivals around the world and received an additional seven nominations. I watched it on Netflix. And lastly, for poetry this week, A Prayer for the Past by George MacDonald. All sights and sounds of day and year, all groups and forms, each leaf and gem are thine, O God, nor will I fear to talk to thee of them. Too great thy heart is to despise, whose day girds centuries about from things which we name small. Thine eyes see great things looking out. Therefore the prayerful song I sing may come to thee in ordered words, Though lowly born, it needs not cling in terror to its cords. I think that nothing made is lost, that not a moon has ever shone, that not a cloud my eyes hath crossed, but to my soul is gone. That all the lost years garnered lie in this thy casket, my dim soul, and thou wilt once the key apply and show the shining hole. But were they dead in me, they live in thee, whose parable is time and worlds and forms, all things that give me thoughts, and this my rhyme. Father, in joy our knees we bow, this earth is not a place of tombs, we are but in the nursery now, they in the upper rooms. For are we not at home in thee, and all this world a vision show, that knowing what abroad is, we 
what home is too may know. Thank you for joining us at Journey with Jesus for this fifth Sunday in Lent. I'm Debbie Thomas.